0: So I ended up in the emergency room, you know, several times. And so I just felt like, just incredibly frustrated that, and, and, and despairing. And actually, for me, it slid into a depression, um, uh, a pretty scary one, because I, just, I didn't feel like I could live this way anymore, and no one seemed to be able to help me.
1: Welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. I'm Dr. John Duffy. I'll be your host again today. And um, as always, the idea here is that the more we talk about um, the anxiety, that we probably all suffer to some extent, um, the more we eliminate some of the taboos around it and um, the less alone we feel and hopefully maybe the less anxious some of us feel as well. I'm very excited to have Andrea Peterson with me here today. Andrea, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. Great to be
1: here. I'm glad you're here. Um, Andrea reports on psychology, health, and neuroscience for the Wall Street Journal, and she is also the author of a book called On Edge, A Journey Through Anxiety. And Andrea, my first question for you really has to do with the book. I'm kind of curious as to how you decided to tell your story in this book um, and, and kind of delve into the various facets that contribute to anxiety, including the neurological elements.
0: Right, so I've been thinking about doing this book for a while, and it was there's sort of many kind of reasons factored into it. One is I really just wanted to be able to provide understanding and empathy and insight to the so many millions of people who struggle with anxiety and I also wanted to be able to explain it the experience to people who don't struggle but who have a loved one who does because. Yeah. What I found, what I found in my sort of twenty-five-year kind of journey with with various anxiety disorders, is that um, it can be it can be it can be sort of baffling to somebody who doesn't sort of deal with the really kind of serious anxiety um, that some of us do. And that, you know, we can't just sort of relax or take a couple of deep breaths and, you know, everything will be
1: okay. Yeah. Why can't and you also, just shake this off, huh? Right.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so I've been, and also, and also journalistically, you know, I've been a health reporter for, for quite a long time. And in the last several years, I've been writing more and more about mental health issues. And I also was realizing that this this is a really exciting time in anxiety research. There's, Advances in sort of neuroimaging and genetics are really helping to uncover some of the mysteries of the anxious brain. New treatments are finally on the horizon. You know, we've been kind of operating with same treatments for the last 50 years. And so you know, finally, it looks like there, there may be some new things um, that might be really helpful to people. So I thought there was, you know, there was a, there was a great journalistic story here as well.
1: Yeah, I, I, and that I found very very interesting. Um and and uh I can tell that you see some hope. Um there's this suggestion in your book that um if um if you were coming of age today, uh things might be different than they were when when this all started for you. Do you mind sharing just a little bit with our audience about how things started and how you um were initially even introduced to the term anxiety disorder?
0: Sure. So I when I was a sophomore in college at the University of Michigan is when anxiety really became became an occupying force in my life. And I can actually point to a specific moment. Um, I was about ready to register for classes and I felt fine. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I didn't. And my heart rate kicked up. I started, I was short of breath. I had these strange visual changes where I had sort of gray blotches before my eyes. And kind of the words that I was reading were sort of dipping and buckling. And I was just overwhelmed by this, this feeling of absolute terror that I was about to die. And now I know that was a panic attack, but I had no idea what it was at the time. I thought I thought I was dying. And if I wasn't dying, I thought I was going crazy. Mm -hmm. And that actually ushered in, you know, as you know, a panic attack is supposed to sort of peak at about 10 minutes and then sort of abate. But for me in that period, it kind of started like a month long what felt like a month long panic attack. I mean, just having this, this these intense physical sensations as well, this sort of overwhelming terror. And you know, I went to a doctor, right? said I was fine, and, <laughs> and then I actually having a medical odyssey. You know, because because for me, anxiety was so physical. I was you know I was I was having all sorts of strange neurological symptoms too: tunnel vision, um, you know, tingling in my uh, face and hands. And you know, now knowing what I know, a lot of them are really classic symptoms of panic disorder. But right. unfortunately, you know I, I wasn't diagnosed appropriately for a year and, and about, you know, a dozen doctors and many, many medical tests later. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, I, I, would, I hope, I hope that I wouldn't necessarily have the same experience now that there's more awareness among doctors and other medical professionals, as well as also on campuses too. I mean, when I was going to college, you know, I didn't even know that a counseling center existed. Right. And now, as I do a lot of mental health reporting around, and I've written quite a bit about college mental health, I mean, college counseling centers are much more visible today. They're much more welcoming. You know, there's there's amazing, uh, also student mental health advocacy organizations on campus, you know, things like Active Minds that are really m- just raising awareness and also normalizing this idea of going to seek help if you're, if you're struggling.
1: And it is uh, far more normal than we think. I mean, the numbers that you cite earlier in your book about people who suffer um, are staggering. And the difference between men and women um, is, is also kind of astonishing.
0: Right. I mean, one in three Americans will have an anxiety disorder at some point during their life and 40% of women. So these are huge numbers yeah. of people. And, you know, the thing is, you know, anxiety is a normal human emotion. Obviously, a a certain amount of it is a good thing. It motivates us to study for tests or prepare for retirement or go to the doctor if something doesn't feel right. But then, you know, as we as those of us who who, you know, at some point it it becomes a disorder when it starts impairing people's lives, when it prevents us from doing the things that we want to do when we want to do them
1: right so, the, so you can have an anxious moment uh, which we all have we get nervous for tests or public speaking or something right sure. right right but you're when when it interferes with our lives and our functioning, that's when it be, becomes this diagnosable condition
0: right that's correct
1: and um, one thing I thought was really interesting and really resonated with me as a clinician that you kind of uh, stumped, really highlighted in your in your work is we kind of like our, the ideas of our um conditions that that they're discrete and that it's really clear that they're separate and and apart from one another. And yet even when you describe panic attacks, you know, you describe like we're taught even in graduate school in psychology, like, yeah, it takes us about 10 to 20 minutes and then somebody is beyond a panic attack. And yet I've worked with many people who've described it like you do that this is a this is a month long affair. This is weeks long right. and, and incredibly painful. And the idea that, you know, well, if you have an anxiety disorder, you have one of them, even though there are a number of them um, listed in the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders. So, um, you know, I kind of wonder what that year was like before you realized, oh, this is what I've got, (laughs) and what it was like to have um, more than one anxiety disorder diagnosed upon you.
0: I mean it was terrifying in one one that year that I went without a diagnosis because you know no one could figure out what was, what was wrong with me and you know people also were sort of you know speculated that so some doctor, doctor speculated well, oh, maybe it's multiple sclerosis maybe it's chronic fatigue syndrome um, but no one you know one doctor actually fired me he was like I have no idea you know don't come back basically wow. <laughs> so and I also ended up in the emergency room you know several times and so I just felt like you just incredibly frustrated that and 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 despairing. and actually, for me, it slid into a depression um uh, a pretty scary one because mm-hmm. I just I didn't feel like I could live this way anymore, and no one seemed to be able to help me. so I, 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 honestly, when I was finally diagnosed with an anxiety with well, a couple anxiety disorders, um I was incredibly relieved that there was actually not only a diagnosis, but there was treatment. There was yeah. something that people that that could be done to. Um, to make this better. And so that was actually, you know, unfortunately, what, what happens often with anxiety is that it feeds on itself. And so by the time I was appropriately diagnosed, my anxiety was deeply entrenched. And I had a lot of what, what's called avoidance behaviors. So, you know, especially people with panic attacks, often start avoiding the places and the situations where they've had panic attacks. And so, you know, I stopped standing in lines. I stopped going to coffee shops. I stopped going to movies. I stopped going to football games at school. I mean, I, you know, so my world, and also I was just exhausted from being anxious all the time. So my world got smaller and smaller. So there was a lot of work that I had to do once I did finally get a diagnosis. And unfortunately, by the time I did I was too afraid to actually take medication. Mm -hmm. I felt so physically vulnerable that even though I knew, sort of intellectually, that probably messing with my neurotransmitters probably would have been a good thing, I just was too terrified to go that route. So, um, but but I did do cognitive behavioral therapy, and that was, and that did get me to you know it was it was a slow road, but it but got me to uh, you know some equilibrium and, and, uh, you know, really did help reduce my symptoms. And then unfortunately I had a relapse and had to go back in it. But, you know, that that seems to be sort of often, uh, par for the course with anxiety disorders that that they can be a a chronic, uh, an issue that, that, you know, you have good years and bad years and, and you might need different approaches depending on, on your life.
1: Yep. Yep. No. And, uh, and we, we like these things to be kind of linear and clear. Um, it's it's interesting to hear the things that made you anxious because, you know, um, I, I, I shared with you before we started that, you know, I, I've suffered anxiety myself. I've, I've worked with countless people who have. I worked with somebody today who um, was angry with himself for being anxious about, you know, um, some things that might have happened in the past uh, or walking into a restaurant or standing in line um and i think we i remember speaking just for myself we sometimes label these things as weaknesses like what's wrong with me that i can't do these very basic things everybody else seems perfectly fine here um did you did you ever have that kind of judgmental element to it
0: oh yes i mm-hmm. did there was definitely an element of shame to it you know personally you know i i feel like well you know i come from a a i had a very um you know my parents were uh good parents i had a very you know a stable home life i always had enough to eat and and i went to good schools and i always had and, and also i had you know health insurance right to get treatment so which is a huge thing so i had a lot of privileges so i yes i felt like you know what do i have really i mean what, all the terrible things that are you know people can experience and suffer from and, you know, what, do I have the right to be anxious? And that was something that was difficult for me to, and also, you know, and honestly, I got, you know, I got that judgment from some other people sometimes mm-hmm. in my life as well. You know, you know, what do you really have to be anxious about? You, you know, you have a, a pretty charmed life. And so, you know, if I, one of my, the main things, my goals for this book is to convey to people that, you know, anxiety is not a moral weakness. It's not a failing it does not mean it does not mean you're weak. It is an illness like any other illness. It just this one happens to you know affect the brain, and um, but it's treatable too.
1: Right, right. So if if you take nothing else away, folks, from this this half hour, that um, is is a really really important message. And thank you for kind of highlighting that, Andrea. Um, and. You you've looked into so you you kind of eliminate almost the necessity of early stressors or environmental issues as requisite for anxiety, and you start to look into other elements. You know, including like you know um, neurology and you know what what else would play into this. Is there anything you learned that like um, surprised you or freed you up a little bit? That you know um, that surprised that. You know, you didn't know before you started your research here.
0: Well, I mean, there are many things that that sort of can, can contribute to anxiety dis- disorders. I mean, th- there's no one single factor that makes someone more vulnerable to these, and you know, they can include things like childhood trauma. Um, one one interesting thing was is actually one of the the sort of childhood traumas that that um, seem to be most Actually, a, a pretty strong risk factor, or, or one of the stronger risk factors for, uh, in terms of your your development, is actually illness in childhood. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting to me because I did have a couple episodes when I was uh, a child where I actually stopped breathing because I would often get uh, get uh, bronchitis and I actually was choking on phlegm. And I that was fascinating because you know, now I can see where I may have sort of developed a fear of these bodily sensations because of having that those, those serious illnesses as a, as a kid. Um, also, you know, phobias are a risk factor, uh, for later development of the other anxiety disorders. And I had a serious phobia of clowns, um, which I know is not necessarily, I mean, it's not atypical. A lot of kids I think are freaked out by clowns. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of creepy. No. Um,
1: <laughs> I think most people would but, oddly agree. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And you know, and it's hard. And, and obviously, you know, there's, there's many, childhood fears that are very normative. So, um, but mine did seem to be kind of on the higher end of, of uh, I remember right, you know, watching Sesame street with literally one foot out the door because there was this recurring segment in the seventies where, um, this guy very kind of sort of depressed looking guy sort of, you know, has a clown face and then they roll the tape backwards and he takes his makeup. It, it looks like, you know, it, it, we roll the tape backwards. So it looks like he's taking his makeup off. Right. That just Terrified me, but there's also you know there's genetic factors too, which you know um, that if you have a a sibling or a parent or a child that has an anxiety disorder, your risk of developing one is five times that of the general population. And you know I can see how mental health issues really um, have affected many people in my family. Um, My father struggles with depression. I have Mm -hmm. an aunt with bipolar disorder. Several cousins who. Uh, deal with uh, anxiety disorders. My 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 grandmother was actually very seriously mentally ill. She was um, uh, an inpatient in a psychiatric facility for several years um, and had psychosis. Um, and there's some, you know, there's some evidence that the same genes actually underlie many different mental health disorders. And so, you know, a, a more, a stronger genetic mutation may have led to my mother, my grandmother's schizophrenia, where a milder version, you know, may have contributed to my anxiety, my father's depression,
1: and doing the kind of research that you've done um, and learning this about your grandmother, and, and oddly enough, you know, my my, my grandmother was hospitalized um, in a psychiatric unit, and it was something my family never talked about until. I became a therapist and started asking questions just to learn. Like, well, what was that about? Now, you know, like, and it, this was kind of this um, shameful family secret um, that turned out to be really important for most of us to know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, and it, it, did you ever feel like mm, maybe I don't want to know what what my family history is? Um, I, I think most family trees are affected one way or another. With, with mental illness and addiction and, and and a lot of different things, but you know as, you, as I read about your grandmother, I was wondering, boy, I wonder if Andrea wanted if that was good news to her and, and you felt relief or did you ever feel like, ooh wow, I wonder if there's something more serious you know on the horizon for myself or my children or you know or anything like that
0: I mean I definitely when I was in college I, I knew I always knew the i mean the, the most sort of harrowing story about my grandmother is that at one point she was so paranoid about something terrible befalling her family that she actually uh, tried to burn the house down with her family in it. Right. Um, that somehow made sense to her that somehow that that would, you know, by telling everyone that that somehow that that would prevent them from some even worse befalling them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so I had that in my head as I was falling apart in college and yes, I did say, you know, is this the first step on a, on a something, you know, to psychosis and yeah. um you know and and there's there's you know anxiety is that psychosis is not generally a, a feature of it and and uh um you know i thankfully i i never uh you know she uh, and it's also hard to know exactly what her diagnosis was because i think in the late 50s and early 60s when she was being treated um schizophrenia was actually a bit more of a catch-all diagnosis yes. so and then the, you know the treatments were obviously not as uh you know, not as where they are now. I'll put it that way. Um, so it's all, it's, all, I mean, I did get her medical records and I was able to look back, but I, I didn't, you know, now I, I didn't, I was actually really, um, I finding out more about how she, you know, what had happened to her and how mental illness had sort of affected my family actually brought us really, I mean, it really. Um, I think it was cathartic for my father and my aunt to talk about it. Um, it really helped me understand my family a little bit better and, um, yeah, it didn't, it wasn't something I shied away from.
1: I love that. I mean, it kind of speaks to the idea of removing the taboo, talking about it openly, uh, supporting each other as a family. Um, I've been trying to do more family work in that regard because I think, you know, um, oftentimes, one sibling will come out and say, you know, yeah, I th- I, I've suffered these panic attacks. I can't believe I'm not stronger than that. And then, you know, I will get the sister next to her saying, you know what, this has happened to me as well. And, you know, and so um, I think maybe in the past, um, just because of some of the shame that's affiliated with, with anxiety, that people have kind of suffered alone in silence. And I like to think with the, with books like yours and, and and some of the work that we're doing, Um, and the removal of some of the taboos that people are more open to talking about it and it might at least give you somebody to lean on where you might feel like you're alone in this thing. Um, otherwise, yeah. Um, you, um, there's a couple of things in your book that, that jumped out at me, um, that, that I, I would love to touch on, um, for just a moment, uh, it's interesting when you look back um you talk about like your grandmother's diagnosis. I remember my grandmother's diagnosis when I found her records were hysteria you know um and so diagnostically things have shifted um in a in a positive way um we might we might be over diagnosing to some extent, but one thing you note is that um anxiety is increasing among young people do you have Do you have a thought as to why you think that is
0: yeah that's that's interesting because that was something that as I was doing various mental health stories for the wall street journal, I I was coming across these statistics, particularly among college students, that the rates of anxiety were increasing Mm -hmm. and, um, and actually that anxiety had now leapfrogged over depression as the number one reason why students were seeking counseling at the, at the, um, counseling centers. And so I did, I actually went back to Michigan to my alma mater to try to get a little bit, uh, we have to try to get, get to the bottom of this. And you know, people look at every people are sort of speculating on everything from, um, the rising cost of college, the rising cost of tuition. You know, so many students are really burdened with these huge loans and that stress of that, right. um, is really weighing on a lot of students. Also just, uh, you know, um, economic insecurity, the, the idea that, you know, a bachelor's degree is no longer enough to guarantee a good job, um, the rise of social media, you know, uh, I mean, there's been studies showing that certain kinds of social media, a lot of, you know, uh, consuming a lot of social media can also can lead to some feelings of sort of sadness and loneliness. And, but also, I mean, and so, so, so those, and even, even so-called helicopter parenting the type of parenting that, um, where students aren't allowed to fail and, uh, and, and to separate in the way that maybe, uh, they could before because I think as parents we're just you know so worried about our our kids' futures that it's hard yes. to see them flounder.
1: I, I think you're so, so right a- about that, and and you know that that idea. I'm so glad you went back to Michigan and like kind of looked into that. Um, my, my sons in college, and and I work with a lot of college age students, and and I I'm finding the same thing that that people that the idea of going into that that counseling center, the taboo affiliated with that. Is no longer as pervasive as it was a generation ago, or pro- even five, ten years ago. And I think um, I do think social media, oddly, you know, as as much as it can be damaging, is sometimes helpful in this regard. When you see celebrities speaking out right. about like their their anxiety or their depression, um, there is this suggestion um, that I think I read in your book this way um, that anxiety doesn't really go away. There's not necessarily a cure but it is treatable. Am I am I close to what you what your message I mean, is? I mean
0: I I can't say as a blanket statement. I'm saying for me I've I realized that for me at least it's it's going to be a lifelong um issue. Yeah. Mean, you know, I have I have easy years, I have tough years and I and I, and now I know how to deal with it. I mean, now I know, you know, when, when things are when things get really tough and anxiety really surges. You know, for me I know that um what's helpful is a round of cognitive behavioral therapy and an SSRI, both of those. Um, when things are you know, even in easy years, I find that I just have to be really diligent about all that boring adult stuff that we're all supposed to do, like <laughs> get enough sleep and eat well and exercise. Um, those I feel like the margin of error for those of us with struggle with anxiety is a lot slimmer. Right. And also, you know, there's there's increasing research around the benefits of mindfulness practices like meditation and yoga. I'm actually t- personally terrible at meditation, but, <laughs> but so so
1: I'm I, in I, that I, club with you. <laughs> so yeah. I understand. But
0: yoga for me has actually been really really uh, super helpful and I try to do at least like a 15-20 minute practice in the morning and I really do feel like that um has helped me a lot and i you know i do take clonopin like as needed which uh-huh. is a benzodiazepine which i know those are controversial and i feel like since i've been really been much more religious about the yoga i, I don't have to take it that much so, Interesting. so that's been that's been good
1: and i like that idea that you know like e- even if this is and and for some people for some of us it is this is a lifelong issue if you have this toolbox that you're that you know well and you know this is this is going to be one of my rougher years that you can you always got those tools available to you, you know and and um, as we progress in treatment, those tools might be more plentiful even than they are now, um, and I suspect they will. Um, one thing that I find interesting is is um, you have said that in in a way, anxiety disorders have improved your life and and I think a lot of people who um, suffer from anxiety. Are would be baffled initially to hear that. <laughs> um, do you mind expounding on that a bit? Right.
0: Sure. Um, and I certainly, I don't see my anxiety disorders as some sort of gift. I mean, I, I, right. I, I don't sort of think it's as simple as that, but I do feel like there have been some upsides. I mean, even as, you know, when, when it's at, when it's my anxiety is at its worst, you know, it kind of erases life and love and it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the experience of I mean, having been through that and, you know, even when it's at, it's more, it's sort of kind of regular low hum that it has deepened my friend relationships. First of all, it's made me, uh, I have to, I've had to be more vulnerable. I've had to ask for help. And I think that that has fostered intimacy and I think it's given me, um, uh, made me more empathetic and given me a point of connection with other people in pain and those, um, I think have enriched my life. I also yeah. feel like this sort of, you know, background hum of uneasiness or, or this sort of, um, uh, you know, this, this, this sort of potential for catastrophe kind of always sort of, uh, you know, in the back of my mind has actually weirdly made me just live a more authentic life. It's just made me, cause I, cause I feel like it, you know, when my anxiety kicks up, it's oftentimes a signal that something is a little bit haywire, you know, that, that, Um, either I'm avoiding some, you know, necessary confrontation, you know, that maybe, you know, something with my husband is a little off and that's something I need to deal with. And so it can actually be, um, sort of a, you know, detector of, of something a little bit awry. I mean, this is of course when it's not at, it's like fever pitch, but then I think it's 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 hard to find really an upside when you're in the middle of a panic attack. I just don't really see which one.
1: No yeah. doubt, right? I mean, uh, but,
0: but but you know, having this sort of, I mean, you know, psychologists even as you probably know, you know, talk about, um, um, you know that that this post traumatic growth, you know, as something that you know, you've if you have gone through a traumatic experience, that it actually can can make um give you more clarity in terms of what's important in your life and actually deepen your your relationships. And I do feel like you know, it's oftentimes Times spoken about in in uh, response to sort of a discrete tragedy or like going through an illness like cancer, but I would say I would argue that struggling with an anxiety disorder can lead to that kind of growth as well.
1: I, I, I love that. I, I think I think that's very true. And I also like to look at anxiety, maybe not in the extreme. I think I agree with you a hundred percent there. But um, in in that moderate kind of background hum um, as this clarion call. From the body to the mind that hey I'm not real happy with how we're living right now <laughs> we need to make some adjustment right. we need to look at our relationships or our work or something um, and so sometimes it's a signal that not that everybody has the, the luxury of I suppose for lack of a lack of a better word and not that anxiety is a whole lot of fun to your point um, is there anything um, that you feel like um, in your message in on edge that that we're missing that's important. is there is there any part of the message that you would want people to hear? Uh, is there something out there that we haven't touched on that you want people to know?
0: Um, I mean, you know we there's there's some exciting sort of new developments on the horizon in terms of treatment. Um, that you know that people are actually because we're learning more and more about what anxiety actually looks like in the brain, that researchers are starting' well, starting to developed treatments to actually target that underlying um, neurobiology of it. And you know, with, with things like actual computer games that can sort of um, help modify this attention bias to threat, you know, anxious people, we, we actually, we simply see more peril in the world. Um, we're much more likely, I mean, I'm more likely if I'm giving a talk um, to notice the person who's frowning or uh, <laughs> not paying attention to right, me than I right. am, the people that are smiling. And so there's, <laughs> there's, you know, attention bias modification, which is a treatment that is helping that actually kind of modifies that. I mean, that's just one of the many, many things. And, but there's even also, also some exciting research that I think could even be implemented even sooner, which is looking at how things like cognitive th- behavioral therapy might be improved with simple things like actually having your therapy appointment in the morning or taking a nap afterward. Or there's a researcher at UCLA who's um, experimenting with seeing if take uh, going for a run after therapy might actually boost if its efficacy because there's a, a protein um, that uh, the levels of it are boosted you know during exercise and that can actually consolidate learning so it's it's pretty it's pretty cool um, some of the things that might that that little tweaks that we might be able to make that could, really can cool. make a difference
1: yeah it mm-hmm. feels very hopeful right because these are really clever yeah, yeah. inventive ideas about you know what what might be helpful in terms of, in terms of treatment going forward. Well, Andrea, I am uh, so grateful to you. You are a wealth of information. Um, and I strongly recommend that everybody listening, uh, pick up this book On Edge, A Journey Through Anxiety. It is, um, it is a really, uh, kind of a, a book I couldn't put down, Andrea. Like, <laughs> uh, I really, really enjoyed it. It, it as an anxiety sufferer. And I learned, a lot as a clinician. So I, I'm grateful to you for that. Um, and uh, Andrea reports on psychology, health, and neuroscience for the Wall Street Journal. Um, again, I am so grateful. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay, folks, as always, you can find the Undo Anxiety Podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, liveleadplay.com, or WGN. Plus. Um, If you have a thought about what we ought to cover on the podcast, or if you or a friend would like to be a guest on the podcast, uh, drop me a quick email at Duffy at drjohnduffie.com. As always, I appreciate you protecting some time for myself and my guests. On behalf of uh, Andrea and myself, thank you so much and have a terrific day.